welcome to another episode of the Carolyn's Middle East News Hour. I'm joined this week once again by my inestimable uh, colleague and friend from the Center for Security Policy and the Kohelet Forum here in Israel, um, David Wormser, Dr. David Wormser. Hey, David, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thank you. How are you? Great, great to have you back on the program today. Uh, um, David and I are going to talk about... Um, we're going to start our program talking about the uh, uh, new uh, revelations of, uh, about the nature of the Trump administration's uh, relationship with Israel that are coming out um, as a result of uh, the publication of a book by uh, one of Israel's uh, top left-wing propagandists who poses as a journalist by the name of Barack Ravid. Um, and, but he's got some pretty stunning re revelations that have come out over the past several days about uh, Trump and his position on uh, Israel and his position on the Palestinians and uh, his relationship with uh, uh, pres uh, then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that I think are all significant, both in relation to what Trump would be like in a second term and also to uh, uh, what really was accomplished here and how is it done. So I think that that's uh, the main thing we're going to talk about. We're also going to move from there to uh, update on what's happening with Iran and uh, where Israel and the United States uh, now stand on uh, blocking Iran's uh, push to uh, become a, a nuclear breakout state, a nuclear threshold state that's capable of developing a nuclear arsenal at will. Um, and finally, I thought we'd uh, go to the uh, issue of uh, US academia, which is taking yet another uh, escalatory uh, step towards uh, uh, boycotting Jews in Israel. So I think that's a pretty uh, jam-packed show just right there for you. It took me it took me half the show just to tell you what we're going to talk about. So uh, so uh, let me just introduce the uh, Trump thing. So last Friday, uh, Israel's second largest circulation uh, newspaper, I work for the first, uh, the top one, that's Israel Hayom, but Yidiot Achronot uh, ran a top headline with uh, Trump swearing about uh, Netanyahu and saying that he was uh, he had uh, blindsided him and that he was or that he had had shown great disloyalty to the president uh, when uh, he uh, he congratulated Joe Biden after the election for for his victory um, and uh, that was uh, sort of well let's focus for a second on what what sort of pathological aspects there were to the Trump uh, Netanyahu relationship and then Saturday night uh several uh uh, uh the same uh, reporter published several of the uh, excerpts of his uh conversation with Trump which took place last April where he was talking about Netanyahu and the Palestinians and uh, his view of uh of PLO leader and Palestinian Authority chairman uh, Mahmoud Abbas um, so Trump uh, said that he didn't believe that Netanyahu wanted peace, whereas Mahmoud Abbas reminded him of his father during their meeting, and he was sure that he wanted peace, and he was so nice, um, and, uh, and he said that he thought that the general, meaning uh, uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz, former IDF's Chief of General Staff Benny Gantz, would have made a deal with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, but that Netanyahu didn't want it. He said, uh, Trump said that uh, the reason that Israel didn't apply its sovereignty over Judea and over parts of Judea and Samaria, the Israeli communities in Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley, uh, along the line set out by Trump's very own Middle East peace plan was because Trump uh, blocked uh, Netanyahu from doing so. And since then, I think today and yesterday, uh, other reports or excerpts from the books have been published where you have Avi Berkowitz, who was Jared Kushner's assistant, 
And uh, the envoy to the Middle East talks in the last year and a half of the administration is 28 years old, said that, um, uh, you know, uh, he's saved Netan or, or uh, uh, he and, and Jared ostensibly ended the, uh, the plan for Israeli sovereignty over, Israel, over, over those parts of Judea and Samaria, and that uh, the Abraham Accords was uh, born out of their coercion of Netanyahu to not apply Israeli sovereignty over those areas in Judea and Samaria set out in the Trump peace plan, and they were able to turn that and turn that around and and get the Abraham Accords. Um, so a lot of stuff was just said, a lot of stuff was just published, and um, you know we have to try to figure out what all of that means about the achievements that were made, the diplomatic achievements that were made by the Trump administration and by the Netanyahu government during. Uh, their four years of, uh, of being in power together. Um, so uh, how do you think that we should be looking at all of these reports, David, given you know what, what so many have thought about the partnership and the friendship between uh, Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, um, obviously the, there, it's a bit of a different picture than what we had uh, until now assumed was the case. I think there are different angles to this. The first angle is that uh, it shows the policy uh, must have been made heavily uh, by a key group of advisors, whether it's uh, Jared or Jason Greenblatt or Ambassador Friedman. So a lot of the uh, the really good decisions obviously were carried through or heavily nurtured, and, and even John Bolton, who then had a major falling out with, with uh, President Trump. So I, I think what you're seeing on one level is a unique coalition of and collection of government officials, very unique for being in the top levels of the US government, uh, really made US policy in a certain direction uh, that was very pro-Israeli when the deeper inclinations of the president were not quite there. Um, the other issue about the president's, well, there's a number of issues, but, but the, another issue is essentially that what comes out a little bit is bitterness. And there's, I think there are two sources of bitterness here that may cloud how, how he really viewed Netanyahu and the government of Israel and Israel uh, before that. There may, may have been a, a slightly different tone and demeanor, uh, demeanor, in fact, maybe a different essence to Trump's relationship and attitude toward Bibi and the government of Israel prior to the election and, and, January, and, and the January um, inauguration of the new ad administration. I, I think there are two elements where he feels somewhat uh, jilted or, or angry. One is, uh, and, and this, this applies also to Iran, uh, one has to understand President Trump wasn't 100% on just supporting Israel. He believed he could come up with the deal of the century. He believed his skills and his negotiating abilities could lead to a deal of the century. And now half of that happened, which was the Abraham Accords, which in my view was the only realistic half. But the other half was that he would come up with a grand deal with the Palestinians. And ever since the beginning of the administration, President Trump had pushed this idea that there was a deal to be had with the Palestinians a grand deal, a deal of the century. And I think that he felt frustrated at the end why that didn't happen. And Abbas was, Mohammed Abbas is very good at convincing people he's nice and says the right words. And if you're not deeply uh, and over the long term inaugurated into the uh, 
into the um, absolute abject dishonesty of the Palestinian narrative and debate, you could fall prey to that. So I think on one level, he felt jilted by the failure of the negotiations to validate his, his negotiating skills and deliver the deal of the century. And the, the, the aim of his anger wound up on Netanyahu. The second thing is it probably wound up on Netanyahu because of the inauguration and Netanyahu's uh, uh, um, uh, fairly rapid uh, uh, congratulations that he said. You know, it was actually, Biden. you know, the thing about it was that it wasn't even, I'm sorry, I, there's somebody at my door, but um, it wasn't even rapid. You know, that that's the thing. And and one yeah. of the most obnoxious aspects of Barack Ravid's narrative is that after after the uh, after Biden was declared the president elect um, on election night or the next day, um, Barack Ravid was basically sitting with a stopwatch and saying an hour has passed and Netanyahu still hasn't congratulated Biden. Two hours has passed and, and Netanyahu hasn't congratulated Biden. And, you know, every single Western leader in the meantime was lining up to congratulate Biden, whether it was Boris Johnson or the presidents of every major European uh, country and other countries, everybody was congratulating Biden. And there was Barack Ravid uh, tweeting out hour by hour, practically, that Netanyahu hadn't congratulated Biden. Uh, uh, then uh, 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 alternate prime minister uh, Gantz had congratulated Biden. Everybody had congratulated Biden except one person, Netanyahu. So after 12 hours, Netanyahu congratulated Net uh, Biden. And then, you know, immediately after, he posted another post thanking uh, Trump for everything that he had done for Israel. And yet, uh, Trump presented it, and he's swearing and yeah. cursing at Netanyahu for being un disloyal. You know, that really, I thought, oh. bespoke right. an incredible petulance on his part and also an ignorance. I mean, Netanyahu actually took a lot of heat for those 12 hours where he was sitting on the sidelines and not congratulating Biden. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, there's also the issue of Pence and Vice President Pence, where uh, Pence was an incredibly loyal vice president to the president all the way through, his biggest supporter, his biggest public advocate. And what happened on January 6th when he certified the elections, uh, you know, there was really very little maneuver room that Vice President Pence had. But to this day, the president clearly has not forgiven Pence for that, uh, for validating the election. And essentially, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu fell into the same category and trap that Vice President Pence has fallen into, which is indeed, as you said, a form of petulance. So I think that that there is a bitterness there. By the way, it's it's not really appropriate because you know one has to look at presidencies and prime ministerships as the custodianship of a trust. Uh, it's not about you. It's it's about your nation. It's about the trust, and you're a custodian. It's not precisely. I mean, you know, the idea that Netanyahu could, uh, uh, I mean, in a way, it's a testament to the to the way that uh, Trump and others saw Netanyahu as you know uh, as as so close to them that you know that he didn't even realize that Netanyahu, as the Prime Minister of Israel, had absolutely no ability, you know, to to ignore. The declared election results. I mean, he he's a, he, he as the prime minister of Israel. It doesn't matter if Trump or his brother. He would have to, he would have to uh, congratulate the other guy for winning because 
that's the national interest of Israel. He can't ignore Israel. Exactly. And the national interest of Israel is his charge as the custodian of the trust, which is the preservation of the Jewish people's uh, continuation uh, in the land of Israel. So I, I think it was even inappropriate on some level for the president to expect otherwise. It, it isn't about the personal loyalty. Now, other presidents have also put loyalty ahead and so forth. And there's a certain fundamental human nature. You're going to trust people who, who've been good to you and been loyal. But at this particular moment, the prime minister had, prime minister Netanyahu really had no choice in, in my view. So combined with, with, uh, with what happened to Pence, in addition to the fact that the prime minister did what had to be done as the prime minister and the president, I don't think fully understood the nature of the office, either his or, or Netanyahu's. I think that that was a train wreck that was inevitable. That train wreck then probably left the president very bitter and made him wonder in retrospect much more about the peace process and why his vision of the grand deal, the, the deal of the century never really materialized, uh, which is frustrating because the president did deliver the only real peace treaty that was possible to deliver, which was the, the Abraham Accords. He did deliver for Israel a lot of Israel's interests. By the way, Israel doesn't necessarily, I, I cannot overstate how much I appreciate President Trump for recognizing Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. There's no doubt in my mind that he's a great, he still will go down as a great president for those things. But that said, the Jewish people, it, he didn't give it to the Jewish people. It, this is already the Jewish people's. It would have been theirs whether or not the United States under any president recognizes it. Uh, that that is something that uh, was given thousands of years ago. You know, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And I, and I and I don't mean to interrupt you, but it is just one of those things where you know I I, I think I mean first of all, Trump didn't make Jerusalem Israel's capital. Like you said, Israel is, Jerusalem has been Israel's capital for over three thousand years. Um, and and I always felt very strongly, whether it was under the Obama presidency or the Trump presidency or any previous presidency, the Clinton, Clinton presidency, when the Jerusalem Embassy Act was first passed and he signed it into law, um, that it, it really, you know, Israel shouldn't pay anything for U.S. Rec recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital because, you know, it's it, whether or not Jerusalem is Israel's capital is not for the American president or or even for Congress. They should recognize it because it's the decent and right thing to do. Having said that, on a strategic level, rather than on a on a level of national interest, that Israel shouldn't pay anything for something that is you know is supposed to be just taken for granted. And if it isn't, that's the problem of the people who aren't taking it for granted. Not of not not Israel's problem. Um, there was very significant, I, I mean, Trump's recognition of, of, uh, of Jerusalem and, and, and later of the Golan Heights as part of sovereign Israel, Jerusalem is Israel's capital and the Golan Heights as part of sovereign Israel, had very strategic implications. I mean, you know, because there are mainly because there are implications of not recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. When you don't recognize Israel's capital as Jerusalem, what you're saying is that you know, Israel is not the, the Jews aren't aren't the natives of aren't indigenous to the, the 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 Middle East. That the land of Israel is not their historic homeland. You're saying, you know, you're basically accepting an anti-Semitic uh, narrative that says that the Jews are just, 
you know, they're new, what the Palestinians say, that there's no relationship between the, the people of Israel, the, the nation of Israel and, and the nation of Israel and, and the Jewish people, that they're two completely separate things. And, uh, and, and, that, uh, and that the Jews of Israel are actually colonizers from all other countries, but they're not, they didn't, they, that Jerusalem is not their capital and that Israel is not their historic homeland. So when, once Trump recognized that Jerusalem has always been Israel's capital, he he put paid that lie and he said no Israel has nothing to do with colonialism whatsoever so I think that that was very important and when you look at the Golan Heights you know it's a it, it's a different concept and it's not as deep also, you know, I mean you have uh, this country Syria who's whose whose leader is controlled by Iran and he has engaged in genocide for over a, a, a decade of his own people. Um, and he obviously poses a, a major strategic threat to Israel and he and giving him the delusion that Israel is going to make itself vulnerable to destruction at his hand by giving up the Golan Heights, I think uh, is crazy. So denying him that I think was a very important and very inexpensive step, you know, for the Americans to take. Yeah, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think Israel always has to remind itself why, what is the foundation of modern Israel legally, internationally? And it's the League of Nations mandate, and the League of Nations mandate recognized, it couldn't grant because it recognized the pre-existing right of the Jewish people to a specific territory, which they then defined in maps. Um, and then it went on to say that, that none of that territory can be removed from the trusteeship that was to be creating the state of Israel without the approval of the Jewish people and the representatives of the Jewish people. So essentially the denial of sovereignty, the denial of recognizing Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem was a violation. And you don't get prizes for, for reversing a violation of law. So again, I, I, I don't wanna, I cannot overstate how much I appreciate President Trump for what he did. But the idea that I think you're right, that Israel owes the world something for correcting an injustice that had never should never have happened is, is not correct. The second thing I think it shows is, uh, and this, this is something I think Israel always has to remember, that which is the essence of Zionism. Even when you have a pro-Israeli administration, which the Trump uh, administration was, I think the most pro-Israeli administration hitherto, uh, it is still very important for Israel to remember its sovereignty, its independence, and its self-reliance. That's the essence of Zionism, that the history of the Jewish people ultimately falls into the lap of the Jewish people to preserve, to continue, and to strengthen. And, and uh, I think it's a good reminder that even a pro-Israeli administration, you must keep that in mind. You can't just sit back and say, oh, okay, well, great. Now somebody else is gonna take care of our problems, whether it's Iran or recognizing the sovereignty over territory and so on and so forth. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why Gantz is popular in the United States is because he represents a security establishment that is essentially a form of, of hostage. Uh, namely, the Israeli security establishment has fundamentally anchored itself to the belief that Israel's very survival is, is dependent on the goodwill of the United States. And while I, I certainly appreciate the strategic umbrella that America provides, 
uh, and so forth. There are moments where Israel's interests dictate independent action, whether it was in the 50s or 60s or now and uh, with Iran. And, and I think it's very dangerous for the Israeli security establishment to think that Israel cannot afford to offend the United States when it touches upon a vital national interest in its independence of action to react. And unfortunately, again, I don't want to get into internal Israeli politics because I'm not an Israeli or not yet, but, but, but the point is Gantz represents the security establishment in his view that if not but for the United States, thereby there there goes there goes the existence of Israel. Uh, I don't believe it. I think I think uh, the United States is is a great ally. I would nurture it when possible. I'd 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 work with the United States to uh, to advance joint interests. But there are times when Israel must stand on its own two legs, and I think that the president uh, reflected a view in his appreciation of Gantz that suggests that he still saw Israel to some extent as not a fully independent nation. And that's, I think, unfortunate. You know, I, I think that for my, for, to my mind, the, the reason why Trump was so unique and the reason why his presidency was so significant, not only for Israel, but really for all American allies, whether they liked it or not, was that he 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 sought to his vision of foreign affairs as 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 it played out through his actions um, was one where America was maybe the first among equals that he, that it, he wanted America's allies to take care of their own yes. problems and he empowered them to do so that he was willing to give American backing and American support military or whatever that was required diplomatic. Uh, for America's allies to take care of their own problems and not to be constantly relying on the United States to do so, which is one of the reasons that the likes of Benny Gantz didn't really like uh, Trump, because Trump was his his point of reference was self reliance, whether it was for the United States and bringing manufacturing jobs back to the United States and and ending or diminishing America's dependence on on China and other and other foreign you know, manufacturers and, um, or, or whether it was giving Israel and the Saudis and the, even the UAE and other countries the means to defend themselves against Iran. Um, so I think, you know, and, and pulling out American troops, sometimes, you know, it, it, it seemed, uh, sometimes his, his decisions about pulling out American troops didn't, didn't strike me as altogether uh, uh, correct. I mean, I think that, you know, he he was, but he was convinced, for instance, to leave American forces at key positions and choke points in Syria that uh, that carried out a lot of strategic missions, despite their very small numbers. But I think, you know, in general, I mean, that that was a thing that really that really distinguished himself from all previous presidents in his relations with Israel. And you're right, what he was saying about Gantz indicated that even um, he wasn't uh, is not devoid of this of this notion that Israel is really just you know the little guy that you pat on the head after you tell him what to do and he does what you tell him to do. Yeah, I think it's so ajar with the way he behaves and his mentality overall, President Trump's mentality overall. I mean, whether it was Japan or 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 NATO or what Israel or the UAE or Saudi Arabia, you're absolutely right. The grand 
shift in, in, in his strategic view was to leverage our allies and, and make them equal, not equal, but, but, but make them partners rather than, than supplicants. Uh, and, and that so ran against the foreign policy establishment's ethos in Washington, which wants, yeah, which wants countries to be wholly, wholly dependent on the United States so that you can control them better. Uh, and and I, I can't emphasize this enough, having worked at the State Department, it is about control of allies. That, that is the foundational principle that governs our foreign policy establishment here. Uh, and where that came from, one can argue whether it was in the containment period and the Cold War where you needed alignment and, 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 and a truly a, a control over the situation to maintain containment and so forth. That may be, there may be historical reasons for where this came from, but the bottom line is the real currency of the State Department's relationship with other people, other nations is control. And, and, and through the United States, God help us if two allies talk to each other. So, um, this was Trump's big departure was, no, you know what? We're not going to control you. You pursue your interests, but at the same time, you carry the water for, for our interests. So essentially, this was leveraging Israel's power, Japan's power, India's power, et cetera. This was leveraging allies' power to help us in a time when we really don't need to have such foreign uh, burdens on our shoulders uh, as we're turning into an introverted upheaval. So I think the president had a very clear policy and his statements and his support of guns are totally ajar and askew from what, what, what we had seen, his actual policy. Well, I think in a way, you know, both what he was saying about Netanyahu and, and what he was said about guns and really what he said about Mahmoud Abbas, um, they're interesting because they're at loggerheads with his actual policy. I mean, even Barack Ravid pointed out that, you know, uh, uh, while Trump spoke very highly of Mahmoud Abbas, who he met with in 2017, it was a meeting that was arranged by American Jews, um, you know, who were kind of trying to do a, an end run around or against uh, Netanyahu and, and against members of the Trump administration and trying to, you know, uh, use that uh, meeting to force uh, Trump to uh, ab adhere to the policies of uh, Obama and, and Bush and, and Clinton and pushing and forcing Israel into negotiations uh, with the Palestinians based on their failed two-state paradigm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, right after that meeting, or, or actually not, not right after that meeting, but, but the Palestinians gave him nothing and Abbas continued to fund terrorism. And then they cut off all relations. Abbas even hung up the phone with him when Trump called him to explain you know, that he was moving the embassy or that he was recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And, the, and, the, and he closed the Palestinian, you know, meet, the, he closed their legation in, in Washington, the representative yeah. office there. He defunded the Palestinian Authority. He defunded UNRWA, all of these things that he did. And um, that was his policy. You know, it was to say, look, you're funding terrorism. I'm going to sign this Taylor Force deal, the Taylor Force Act that bars the United States from financing the Palestinian Authority so long as you pay the salaries of terrorists and you pay pensions to the families of dead terrorists. You know, no more of that. So he did all of these things. And now out of office, he's saying, oh, you know, uh, he was the good guy and Netanyahu was the bad guy. So it's very strange that the statements that he makes are at such loggerheads. And, 
you know, what I'm writing about in Israel Ayom is really that, you know, if this is at least one of Trump's tendencies and clearly has competing tendencies, and it really is a testament to Netanyahu and to a very large degree, David Friedman, the ambassador here, uh, yeah. that uh, Israel and the United States were together under Trump able to accomplish such extraordinary things. Well, I, I would add one, uh, one moment. Uh, John Bolton was an important figure as well in this critical period, but also I would, I would add very, very strongly, one cannot underestimate how much, the, how much Vice President Pence paid a positive role in all of this too. He was very pro-Israeli and he was pushing very hard. So I think, as you said, David Friedman and Jason Greenblatt and uh, and Jared even would really need to be given credit. So too, I think that needs uh, Pence, uh, Vice President Pence really needs to be. And this, this gives Israel some hope in the sense that there is a foreign policy establishment on the Republican or conservative side that really is so fundamentally pro-Israeli and gets it. Now, again, I, re I repeat, Israel should, should be wary and independent, even under the most pro-Israeli administration. But it's nice to have friends in the White House. It's nice to friend, have friends in, in the top power establishment in Israel. And I think this shows the depth of the conservative side, whether it's Pompeo or, and, and he's another one I think that should be recognized here. Uh, these, these were all people who were fundamentally rooted in the policies that the, that the United States took under the Trump administration. And uh, I, I think that what we're seeing is they had a great role in constructing them. And therefore in the future, uh, under any Republican administration, you probably will see a continuation and repeat of those policies. Well, I mean, that is a question that, you know, some people here are asking, I have to say some people, I being the royal some people, because I'm asking it to myself, but, uh, but you know, I'm not, I'm not the only one, which is Trump right now is the front runner by far uh, to uh, not only be the Republican candidate in 2024, but also to be uh, the president. And uh, until Barack Ravid's uh, uh, revelations about where he stands on, on Israel, um, you know, that that seemed like the uh, a fantastic outcome. But now, you know, you got to wonder if he gets a second term and these are his inclinations and he doesn't have to worry about getting reelected because this will be his last term. You know, where is that Republican base going to figure in his thinking? Because the way that he was talking about Netanyahu and the Palestinians, uh, in a way, it was very, you know, Mitt Romney and other establishment uh, Republicans who went along with the two state formula um, you know, they couldn't really have said it any better. And and you you kind of wonder at him versus, uh, you know, other Republicans who are much more solid and they don't they don't sort of hem and haw or wax and wane in their support for Israel because they just don't, you know, um, what 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 would we expect from a, from a second Trump term? Yeah. Um... I, I think you're raising some very serious questions. If It's hard for him to walk back from these statements, by the way, even if he didn't think them during the last administration and he woke up the next morning after this interview and said, Gee, I don't know why I said that. I really, you know, it, 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 these sorts of statements lock you in in the future. So it's, it's, it's disturbing. It's definitely disturbing. I think the political, and of course the second term, you do have an issue of a, of a political, uh, sort of released from some of the political considerations, but still, I think politically it's in a certain direction. 
that that is pro-Israeli. But again, what really strikes me is I can't see how he really believed those things and had the policies that he had in the first administration. I have heard that he didn't particularly personally like Netanyahu at times. I don't know why, I don't know what was going on, uh, uh, but nevertheless, he seemed to like Israel a lot and he seemed to work very well with Netanyahu. And certainly a lot of his aides like Jared and, and so forth did have an excellent relationship with Netanyahu. So um, again, I, I find this so, dissonant from what, what the policy was and the behavior was, that I almost have to look at it as a rewriting of what he felt projected onto the past based on his anger in the current. You know, uh, at the Bill Clinton ran a very anti-Israel policy at the end of the day with his uh, madcap push and extraordinary pressure on Israel to make a deal with, uh, with the PLO, with Yasser Arafat, and his belief that he could reach a final deal, final peace deal before he ended his presidency, uh, even the Clinton parameters that he put out after in December of, of 2000, after, after Bush had already been elected, uh, that were extremely anti-Israel um, in terms of what he his his view of what a, a final deal between Israel and the PLO would look like. Then when he, he, he was out of office, uh, he, there was a report that Yasser Arafat called to say goodbye, and 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 Clinton said, you know, you ruined my presidency, and that uh, later on, uh, you know, in, in the months after he left office, he he said that uh, Arafat was a liar and and things, and I think it's better in a way, and and in the meantime, Israel was blowing up, right? I mean, we were in the middle of the yes. largest Palestinian terror campaign, uh, at least since the 1930s, and arguably ever. Um, and uh, over 1,500 Israelis were murdered uh, at the end of, of Clinton's uh, of failed peace process and uh, as a direct result of the massive empowerment of Palestinian terrorists. So, you know, to a certain degree, it's better for somebody to, to implement a fantastic policy that stabilizes the region and brings peace and strengthens America's ally, Israel, and, and undermines its enemies, uh, Iran and Syria and the PLO and Hamas, um, and then regret it, than it is to uh, do the wrong thing, uh, to empower terrorists, to, uh, uh, to undermine uh, your allies, and, um, and then to regret that after, you know, th dozens of people are killed every month in, in suicide bombings. No, I agree. Look, going forward, I think in a Republican administration would be very favorable to Israel, although there is this little rising tide also of this camp uh, surrounding Rand Paul and so forth. Of, I don't want to call it isolationism because it isn't quite fully isolationism. But I would be careful about the hostility that that camp may have toward Israel because there's still this myth floating around that somehow Israel is the one that got us into the Iraq war and that Israel was constantly enlisting the United States to fight Israel's wars in the region. Um, you know, all of which is not true. Israel really didn't support the Iraq war, to be quite honest. Uh, it, 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 but it's, it's there. But by and large, the Republican side, it, I would count on it being pretty pro-Israeli. Uh, even if Trump were the president, I think ultimately that's that's where it winds up because that's where the Republicans ultimately are. 
Uh, but that said, again, it just reminds me, don't, Israel is best, even in terms of American public opinion standing on its own two legs. But this, this one element that Trump felt betrayed on some level, not only by January 6th and our January 20, 20th, the inauguration and the acceptance of, of the pre presidency of Joe Biden by, by, by Netanyahu, there's a, I think there's that deeper sense of, of he is the one who can deliver deals, the art of the deal. He's the one who can deliver deals where no, pin, no man has ever gone before. And he is frustrated on some level that these deals that he claimed he could easily do never happened. And he's sort of looking for people to blame. So I think that's a, a troubling thing for a future administration to think about. I think you're right. And you know, one of the things that he said, I mean, I, I wanna actually go to Iran. So I don't, I mean, do you wanna talk about what he was saying about the annexation, the, the Israeli sovereignty? Uh, that he scuttled after he put it into his own peace plan and he talked about it in his speech on January 20th, uh, 27th, I think it was 2020, with Netanyahu in the, in, in the uh, White House with him? Well, again, a little bit undoes what he did in Jerusalem. I mean, it is, wasn't his discuss, it wasn't his not to give. I mean, it was, the, the Israeli claims to the, ter to the territories uh, that were part of the mandate is is something legally found uh, grounded in, in the mandate. It isn't really the United States' purview to grant it or not grant it, stop it or not stop it. These are practical political questions uh, for Israel to ask, you know, does it want to do whatever if it really offends so many people or so forth? My view is, is toward the, the tougher uh, line where Israel should. Uh, but I see the arguments, but to legally say, and again, legally withhold uh, recognition, it isn't really in the United States is to give or take. And again, so I, I was a little disturbed by that. If, if Israel felt it had to do what it had to do for a larger strategic recognition, say by the UAE, then that's a, that's a question for Netanyahu to ask. I'm not sure that the president of the United States really was in the position to decide whether Israel should or should not have sovereignty. And again, any president now at this point, whether it's left or right, will say that. But again, I, I don't believe that ultimately it is the international communities and all its members' decision to accord legal rights to territories that are part of the Jewish people's trust, as enshrined by the foundational documents that created modern Israel, the League of Nations mandate. Well, I agree. I do think, though, that um, you know the issue of applying Israeli sovereignty or not to parts of Judea and Samaria, again, in accord with Trump's own peace plan, um, I think that what happened there was was pretty pretty amazing. I mean, here you you make this deal, you agree to it. The Palestinians won't even negotiate with you. They won't even, you know, they reject your peace plan the, without ever reading it. And 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 um, and you realize that there's nobody to talk to on that side. So you say, okay, you know what, Israel, just do it. Just apply your laws to to the areas that we laid out. And then we'll see if they want to make a deal. That's exactly what's in the peace deal, which is if they want to make a deal, if they're able to make a deal within the next four years after you've done that, then you know we can talk about them getting the other parts of uh, 
of Judea and Samaria that you didn't apply your laws to, but if they don't, then okay, you know, feel free to do whatever you want. And, and um, you know, I, I couldn't, I, I still don't understand how that could have been in the Trump deal of the century. And then Trump himself saying, no, you're not allowed to do that to Netanyahu. I, I cannot certainly understand why Netanyahu would say, well, if Trump is gonna, you know, is, if Trump is gonna not back me on this, then I can't, I can't do it because that would harm Israel. And that's not the point here. The point is to, to, to strengthen Israel. And therefore I'm just gonna bow out of it. If that's, if, if you're suddenly changing your position 180 degrees. Again, and it's so, it's so, um, at odds with what the president had done before in the sense that, again, maybe the deal, the art of the deal really is so predominant in his head that this, this uh, was somewhat of a step backward to have it be unilateral. The point is it's realistic. Does anybody really honestly think Israel is going to leave East Jerusalem? If anybody's ever walked from the King David Hotel to the old city, do they realize they're crossing over what people call the green line. Does anybody really think Israel's going to withdraw from, from Qumran in the, in the Jordan Valley? Do they think really they're going to leave Gush Etzion or Ariel? It's, it's practically, it's done. These are, these are parts of Israel. There's no way to extricate them from Israel. That's why this whole thing. And they shouldn't be. There's done. absolutely no, there's no justification for, 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 right. for, you know. So, so this was a, this was a recognition of a reality right. that these are areas that are going to wind up in Israel and Israel can't, and the world can't lie in limbo forever. And the Palestinians were the reason why there was such limbo. So as a result, you, 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 you say, okay, fine. You know, you don't ever want to be serious about this. We've given you 30, 40 years of an unbelievable deal and you keep throwing it in our face and killing Jews and making the situation worse and, and causing greater and greater tension and, and regional instability by your behavior, namely, uh, Abu Mazen and Yasser Arafat, then fine. You know, look, we got reality we have to deal with and you chose not to have a deal, then we'll have to move forward without a deal. And that's, that's essentially the spirit of what was going on. And, and, and now all of a sudden the deal seems to be that Abu Mazen wanted peace. And I don't know, it again, it's so at odds with what actually happened on the ground. All right, well, one thing that he did say there, which, uh... I think it was. I think it was overblown. But you know, he did say that the most important thing that he did for Israel was uh, leave the Iran nuclear deal, and that if he hadn't been president, then Israel would have been annihilated, which is the hyperbole. But I do think that uh, uh, leaving the Iran nuclear deal was, uh, if 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 we've already discussed the. Um, if we've already discussed the Jerusalem recognition and even the Golan Heights recognition of Israeli sovereignty as being, you know, just uh, really a, a brilliant strategic move, mainly because you don't have to pay anything and and you get you get the most bang for your non-buck as you can possibly imagine, just by recognizing reality and taking away the hope of Israel's enemies and America's enemies that they're going to be able to destroy Israel or or deny its right to exist. Um, the the leaving the Iran nuclear deal was something something else. It was it was a very significant strategic move. And when we're looking at it in 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 the context of the Biden administration's policies and even the Bennett Lapid uh, Gantz government's policies on Iran 
and how they're struggling and how the Americans are struggling to go back to that deal. I think that, you know, I think that his statement is borne out to some degree. What, what do you make of it? How do you look at it in the context of what's happening today? Yeah, look, I think it was one of the most important moves of the of the Trump administration. I, again, one I think that the Trump administration deserves very high praise for was leaving the nuclear deal. The problem was the follow on and what that meant. Uh, again, you could go one of two routes once you leave the nuclear deal. You could believe that there was another deal to be had, but that it would be grounded on very sober and restrictive terms uh, with, the, with the Iranians. In other words, a real deal, a real meaningful deal, or alternatively, that no deal is possible and that other policies have to be pursued with Iran, which is hell-bent, whether it's in a deal or not within a deal uh, for nuclear weapons. So the, the fundamental policy question afterwards, I think the Trump administration, Trump himself, again, with his belief that he can negotiate uh, in a way that nobody else can, I think believed that another nuclear deal was possible and that it was much, much tougher. So the toughness of the Trump administration on Iran uh, was geared toward uh, destabilizing the regime, leaning on the regime, creating such a threat to the regime that it constitutes sufficient leverage for them to buckle and come back under a, a, a very tough deal that more effectively controls their program. I think that that was a schizophrenia in American policy that sounds reasonable, you know, that you do that and hey, if the Iranian regime falls along the way uh, because we were so tough, well, that's not bad either. So it seemed to be a no-lose type situation. But the truth is those policies are contradictory. The moment that you suggest that you're after a deal, any deal, even a really tough deal in the end, you're signaling the Iranian people that they're a pawn that their freedom, that their, their attempt to get rid of their government is meaningless to you, and that at the end, you'll sell them out. The more the Iranian regime is threatened, maybe the better off it'll be with a nuclear deal, but the Iranian people themselves will be sold out. So they were limited in how far they would go because they, they felt that the international support for their uh, uprisings, and there were a number of them during the Trump presidency, I think they felt that the support was not quite there. And uh, I think it, it, it prolonged a process of the fall of the Iranian regime that might have been expedited by that. I personally think that the Trump policy had, he had a second term would have led to a regime collapse in Iran uh, right around now or, or maybe shortly into the future. So I think in the end, it would have been it would have been a great policy that led to the result that wasn't quite what the president had, had anticipated, but it would have been a wonderful result. You know, um, it, it's just that it took so long, right? I mean, you know, yeah. that, that Trump came into office having pledged during the uh, during the during the election that he was going to remove the United States from the nuclear deal with Iran. And here, I think you really see with the whole policy on Iran in a very, in, in a very, in a very clear way, uh, how the Pentagon and the State Department were actively trying to undercut yeah. policies on Iran, whether it was the defense secretaries or, or the Secretary of State is the first one, 
um, they were they were undermining his policy goals. Trump too was, by the way, the Israeli security establishment, which wasn't really all that clear that they opposed the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and, and you know, I, I have to say one thing about the Iran nuclear deal: the argument given by this administration, the Biden administration, and the uh, Obama administration is, well, look. It's flawed. Okay, we get that. But it did slow them down. It did sort of halt the Iranians. And having been personally involved in negotiations over nuclear issues with the, Iran with the Iranians and with the Europeans and so forth, one thing is and really a, a, almost 100% sure when you're dealing with the Iranians, if they're going to concede something, it's something they internally anyway were not going to do. Right. So whenever they had a pause in their centrifuge spinning or center for construction or whatever, whether or not there was going to be a deal, they were going to do that. And I think with the Iranian nuclear deal, they might have given up a little bit of their nuclear, their, their uranium stockpile, agreed that that probably set them back a few weeks. Uh, 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 and I say only a few weeks because what they did do under the deal uh, was what they were anyway, they were anyway going to stop spinning centrifuges, work on developing the newer generation more effectively, and then essentially switch over to the newer generation, mm -hmm. which is a, a, a frightening breakout capacity. I think people have to realize the old centrifuges took a long time. It could, they enriched, but they, it took a long time to enrich. It took a year or two or three to get to a certain amount of nuclear material. These new centrifuges were, were multiples faster in doing the same thing, maybe 19, 20 times as fast. So what took 20 months took, what takes one month. And, and so the Iranians made a calculated decision to give up a little bit of their stockpile, which they can replace very rapidly, in exchange for which they are allowed to do what they were anyway going to do, which is to switch out the old centrifuges for the new center, which will then create a true at you know push of a button breakout capacity for them. Now, I think that you know the problem that that when we're looking, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the problems with the the sort of the fundamental problem with the Iran nuclear deal was that it was that anybody thought that you could reach a deal that paid Iran something uh, in exchange for their illicit nuclear activities. I mean, they, they were banned by the NPT, which of, of which they are a signatory, from doing any of the things that they were doing. And yet they were richly rewarded for those things with sanctions relief and, and, and international legitimacy and the right to enrich uranium, most importantly. So the deal itself was terrible. But the idea that the world's most prolific state sponsor of terrorism should be rewarded for proliferating weapons of mass destruction or developing weapons of mass destruction is 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 insane and and that was really the centerpiece of american diplomacy towards iran for for many many years i, I, I yeah. obama just es escalated it and i think that you know the, the americans um you're right it, I mean, there are two aspects to what what Trump did. One is that it came late in his administration, just like his his deal of the century came late. But also that uh, um, it it needed time in order to to work. And when you're when you're looking at a political map in the United States where your political opponents uh, see things, see the world 180 degrees differently from you, um, you can't 
rely on a continuation of your policy because you have no guarantee that you're going to get reelected. And so you really, you know, the, the sort of long-term policy that he enacted that was going to require more time than he had was, was probably, you know, uh, a mistake. And the other aspect to that is that, you know, it might not have been a mistake if the Pentagon had actually been on board with him. And you're right, the Israeli security establishment is horrible. Um, but a, a couple of weeks ago, a Yahoo News article came out which was stunning and it, because it said that Trump or the National Security Policy Council under Trump had given detailed guidance to the Pentagon and the State Department for things to do to undermine and destabilize the Iranian regime, where it was the CIA and the Pentagon, not the State Department. And they slow rolled everything. Um, the director, uh, Gina Haspel and uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, slowed, ro slow rolled everything that they were asked to do. They did nothing, and uh, they didn't provide plans. They didn't put together. They didn't. They didn't do anything until it was too late, until it was clear that any steps that they were going to take were going to be carried out under the Biden administration, meaning that they would never be carried out. So. That was, you know, if, if you didn't have a Pentagon and, and a CIA that were actually committed to undermining your policies, then, then perhaps he would have been able to complete everything that he needed to do in one yeah. time. You know, it, it, it's, it's another thing that looking back on the Trump administration, I think it's important to realize is uh, Gina Haspel and, and Millie were both his appointees. Mm -hmm. And uh, as were Tillerson and, and so forth. I think that that President Trump, again, coming from New York, the ethos of New York is so fundamentally different than Washington. And, and again, I'm not saying that you should become a Washingtonian, the opposite. Washington is a really bad place. It's, it is a swamp indeed. Uh, but to navigate through that swamp, you need a team. And you need to work as a team. He needed a bench. He needed to go and have a depth of appointees and take seriously the political appointee structure to really impose his will on the bureaucracy. And I don't think as a businessman, he ever internalized that properly throughout his administration. That it really is as, as Harry Truman, or, or actually it was, um, yeah, Harry Truman said, uh, you know, when you push a button as a president, nothing may happen because it really depends on your team to make it happen. And I think that's a that's one of those tragic flaws of the Trump administration is he approached it like a New York business where he really is in charge as opposed to a Washington administration where he needs a team to to implement it. And and, and I think it hampered his ability to both judge who's his friend, uh, just like Abu Mazen was no friend of no grandfather or father figure. He was a, he was a liar and he was dishonest and a terrorist. Uh, so and a terrorist uh, and a Holocaust denier essentially. So too is um, yeah, Argina Haspel and uh, and uh, the and Millie. They were not part of his team. They were uh, you know may have great qualities and honorable people. But one has to remember Gina Haspel was the London station chief under the last year of the Obama administration, which is when the P dossier was happening and, and so on and so forth. So there, there really is a real question mark. A lot of people had concurrently, by the way, this is not in retrospect. Concurrently, a lot of people were quite shocked when he appointed these people because they knew they were not loyal and were working to undermine him. And that was a consistent theme of this administration.
yeah, well, yeah. always I mean, Jews. Uh, people who were, were trying to implement his own policies of undoing the swamp. You know, it would, I, I mean, and, and that sort of is what is so distressing as well about Barack Ravid's book, because Barack Ravid is not getting his stories from, uh, from the Pentagon or from the CIA. He's getting it uh, apparently from Avi Berkowitz. I mean, I think, you know, the, the stories that came out uh, today and yesterday are all quoting Avi Berkowitz and citing Avi Berkowitz and Avi Berkowitz attacking uh, Friedman, Avi Berkowitz attacking uh, Netanyahu uh, in Trump's name. And, you know, it's one of those things where you had this really um, excellent team of people who came at this issue from very different perspectives. And you saw Jared was moving in a different direction from Friedman and, and to a, a certain degree to from uh, uh, Jason Greenblatt, and um, he was more interested in making a deal with the Palestinians. Uh, he, as he made clear after uh, after the uh, White House uh, events in January of 2020, uh, where there, where where Trump introduced his peace plan that in, involved Israeli sovereignty over parts of Judea and Samaria, and then Netanyahu said he intended to implement that aspect of the deal immediately. And then there was this whole huge hullabaloo that it was really because of cleavages inside of Trump's team. And, you know, these were the people who were the most loyal to Trump. And so in a way, I mean, the most distressing aspect of it is that this team worked fairly harmoniously with, aside from uh, apparently Abi Berkowitz's own leaks to, um, to Ravid, which Ravid cites in his book, um, uh, operated pretty harmoniously uh, together and, um, and uh, now, a year later, that team, which really did so many extraordinary things in the Middle East, um, is, is, uh, is, uh, un is unraveling. And, and that's also a shame, you know. Yeah, it is. It is. But uh, again, I think that it, it does show some of the flaws that were in the administration before. It's uh, too much reliance on, on, on the system and too much uh, feeling that if you order people to do the right thing, either they do it or you fire them. And that doesn't work that way in Washington. So make sure you have your people in places of power that you need to have them. The you know, I remember uh, David Goldman, uh, our friend who I've, I had on the show to talk about China a couple of weeks ago. Um, David uh, uh, once, I think at the outset of the Trump administration said to me, you know, the problem is that we don't, you know, the, the neoconservatives of the Bush administration uh, fundamentally did not understand a lot of things. You know, the, the, yeah. the messianic impulse of thinking that, you you know, elections were going to transform everybody into, into Jeffersonian or Madisonian uh, Democrats, liberal Democrats uh, in the likeness of America, that that was that was wrong, obviously, and uh, and America played paid a very significant uh, price because of that blindness. And he said that it was very hard because they had sucked all the oxygen out of the room and they had blocked anybody who wasn't on their team from advancing in the foreign policy circles of the of the of the Republican Party. That that Trump didn't really have people who had experience, except for some old timers from the from the Reagan administration who he could turn to uh, when he was trying to fill positions uh, in his administration and the foreign policy team. 
Um, and one of the one of the advantages of the last four years is that there have been a lot of people who worked in the Trump administration who got government experience, who would be able to then, if they were interested, um, you know, work again in a in a in another Republican administration, whether a second Trump administration or somebody else's administration, and bring that bring that uh, experience to to bear again. Uh-huh. You know, there really is a new cadre of young conservatives out there that are emerging. Uh, of course, there is that Rand Paul school, but there, there's really, when you look around um, and you see things like the Vandenberg Institute or, or the Andy Marshall Fund and so on and so forth, you're, you're beginning to see a new crowd emerge that aren't neocons, don't have the flaws of the neocons, uh, but are, are really committed to a more assertive American power. And the views of the Middle East are really derived from the Trump administration's actual policies. Uh, they, they, were, they were happy with those. So you really do see a, a growing school in the younger generation of Republicans heading in that direction. Uh, but again, one of the key lessons they will have to carry into administration, hopefully they learn this being in this administration, is the swamp, the Washington swamp is real, it's dangerous, and it wins more often than not, and that you really have to be on, on your toes all the time and, and understand you cannot assume that the bureaucracy will do what you ask it to do just because it's their job. It doesn't happen that way. No, it doesn't. And, and, you know, another aspect to that that's so disturbing is where I wanted to end tonight, uh, today, which is uh, the state of America's uh, academia, right? So, you know, because they are the ones, the universities are where you're getting, uh, we're going to be getting the next generation of, of American of American policymakers, whether in foreign affairs or in, or in domestic affairs. And, um, you know, I, I, and last week, I think it was um, the uh, Middle East uh, Studies Association, which is the largest uh, Middle East uh, Studies Association in the United States. Um, it, was, it was on December 2nd. Um, they passed a resolution at its annual business meeting that endorses the boycott, divestment and sanctions call against Israel. And uh, I'm just reading from an op-ed written by uh, William Jacobson and Johanna Markin from the uh, Legal Insurrection Foundation. Um, and, uh, and it's supposed to go to a full membership vote in uh, January. And so um, what they write here, it's pretty amazing, this BDS thing. You know, people like uh, P- Peter Beinard, who were supposedly the soft BDS supporters, boycott, divest, and sanctions movement against Israel, campaigns against Israel. Oh, it's only against the settlements. It's only against, you know, the bad Jews like me who live in Judea and Samaria, unified Jerusalem or the Golan Heights. It's not against Israel per se. But uh, what, uh, uh, what Jacobson writes here is that prohibited activities include academic projects or activities, research and development projects, speeches, including debates, study abroad programs in Israel, publishing in or refereeing articles for Israeli university journals and normalization projects in, in quotation marks. As the BDS guidelines make clear, the boycott covers individual Israelis who represent such institutions. Uh, the Middle East Studies Association vows in the resolution to give effect to the spirit and intent of this resolution endorsing BDS. So, 
um, it has 2,700 individual members and 54 institutional members, including major public universities such as Florida State University and University of Arkansas. So, you know, this is a, this is an all-out a boycott of Israel, of everybody who is pro-Israel. I mean, debates, you're not allowed to have debates about Israel. Yeah. You know, there's only one way you can talk about Israel. And this goes together with a study that was put out by Heritage uh, this week that said that it was uh, published, I think, by the Washington Free Beacon, where they said that, I don't know, something along the lines of 90% of the tweets put out by uh, diversity officers in U.S. universities yes, were so. anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, and only 61% of their China tweets uh, were anti-China, or 61% were pro-China, and only 40% were anti-Chinese. So, you know, these people are anti-Semites, the people who are in charge of the diversity yes. Uh, diversity dictatorship in U.S. Uh, universities, they're anti-Semitic, and now you have the Middle East Studies Association that's going full on, let's boycott the Jews, let's boycott the Jewish state, let's block anybody from learning anything about Israel, and let's block anybody from questioning our, our uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel brainwashing of our students. You know, um, already a decade or two ago, uh, uh, Professor Fouad Ajami and Professor Bernard Lewis worked with the Smith Richardson Foundation to try to create an alternative to MISA because it was going off the rails on all sorts of levels already. Um, so this is not a surprising development, but I think it again shows the utter bankruptcy as an, as an intellectual uh, organization uh, that, it, that it seeks to engage in cheap political uh, boycotting uh, rather than actually study the material and, and, and encourage the study and understanding of the of the region, so I should I think it shows how utterly useless Nisa has become, and more than useless, dangerous because it actually now is trying to shut down anybody from being able to understand the region. So so it's it's time, frankly, for Nisa to go away. Uh, once you cross that line of, of the BDS, I think it's time for it to go away. What does that mean, go away? Well, I think anybody who's involved with it at this point should boycott the uh, the uh, the uh, movement, the uh, the, uh, the Mesa conferences, and so forth. It it should impugn you to be involved with them if this is their point of view, and you're you're uh, a scholar in the United States, not an Israeli, studying Middle East studies. I think if you go to a Mesa conference, you should be uh, questioned. Uh, as as to how objective and and uh, truly intellectually honest you are, because this is a an organization that has crossed the line in in terms of morality. Uh, the BDS is an immoral movement. It's it's it is it is akin to labeling out Jews. So you want to participate with that? That should impugn your reputation. And I think you could make that that whole organization fold and go away over time, if if we really uh, have a boycott of the boycotters going on. I think you're right, and I think it, you know when I was reading Jacobson's uh, report on on the uh, on the uh, BDS resolution, he he mentioned there something that really brought you to mind. Um, he said that the other uh, academic and uh, academic. Uh, studies or whatever um, uh, group that had 
uh, had has adopted so far BDS as their policy was in 2013, and that was the American Studies Association. And I remember when that happened, a lot of other groups have thought about it and then and then walked away from it at the last moment moments in in the years since. Um, and it reminded me, you know, American Studies is a is a discipline that was created. Or, somewhere in the 1980s, 1990s, and, and I never understood it. I had a friend in high school who studied American studies at, at University of Iowa, and I said, what do you mean American history? And she said, no, it's new, and it's a lot of things, but basically what it is today, I don't know what it was when she was studying it, is, um, is anti-American indoctrination. American studies departments are, are anti-American studies departments. And they're really the breeding ground for critical race theory in a lot of ways, and 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 other and other academic uh, uh, poxes, and uh, and and they're very you know they they are I think they were deliberately made that way these American studies departments, and so you know you had mentioned in the past how the instrumental use of demonization of Israel by the left that is also anti-American. And maybe, you know, we can we can kind of wind it up with you kind of with with you discussing that. What what is the relationship between the American studies and the Middle East studies that both of them would be they they would be the two organizations to adopt an openly anti-Semitic policy. Yeah, I think what you're seeing in America is the creation of of superstructures to impose on real study or real knowledge. A fundamental shift. So in medicine, the doctors don't set medical policy. There's meta, there's uh, um, health policy professionals, which are not doctors, and they have more power now than the doctors. In legal studies or education, you have education uh, policy professionals, which are imposing, and they create institutions like uh, uh, that, that then impose on teachers, the actual practitioners, a fundamental radical shift that they could never have done if they had worked through just teachers or through doctors, because this isn't medicine and this isn't education. This is ideology imposed through recreating this superstructure down onto the actual professions. And it's happening in academia too. So I think what you're seeing here is uh, uh, this deep ideological commitment to unraveling, un on destroying the, the bonds that keep America together as a culture, as a nation. And part of those bonds are to understand our Judeo-Christian foundation. It isn't just a democracy. It isn't just some, some form of Rome with, with, with elections. We, we are also a Judeo-Christian culture. It's a fundamental element of who we are ever since the first Puritans set foot uh, in Plymouth Rock, and to unravel the bonds that make up American culture and keep us together as a nation involves having to sever us from Israel, from the Judea Jewish experience, ultimately to go back to Mount Moriah and undo the promise of Abraham. So I think that it's all part of a continuum of assault on the West, whether it's the Western science, which, which is now under severe assault by quote, scientific community, scientific policy communities, uh, or whether it's our own history being assaulted, whether it's through uh, destroying statues or 
or destroying the cultural foundations of the West by saying the Judeo-Christian culture is evil. I agree. You know, I'll just, I, I think it's, you know, it, it, something that sort of joins all of these things together uh, is, uh, is that the Italian government just released historical documents from 50 years ago uh, that prove that in the 1970s, uh, Aldo Moro, uh, then uh, I, then it, Italian prime minister signed a deal or made a deal with a PLO with Yasser Arafat that said that the Italians were going to turn a blind eye to anti-Jewish and anti-Israel terrorism on the part of the PLO and its member organizations in Italy so long as the, as the Italians didn't attack non-Jewish Italians. And um, this, this uh, agreement was first exposed by by uh, former Italian president Cosiga in 2008 in a letter to uh, Corriere della Sera and then in an interview with uh, with with Yudio Rajonon. And it was really funny because um, after the news that the documents had been released that, that Cosiga had referred to uh, in 2008, um, I remembered I had written about it at the time. And so I went back to my archive and I found the article that I wrote about Cosiga and what he what he said from 2008, and I posted on my Twitter page if if anybody wants to look for it. And and the thing that 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 was notable, I mean, there were there were two aspects that were notable. So one was there was a little boy, a two year old boy, uh, in 2000 in in 1982, in October of 1982, on I think it was the first day of Rosh Hashanah, uh, the uh, PLO uh, uh, bombed um, the crowd outside of the Rome synagogue. And a two-year-old boy uh, was murdered when he was coming out with his parents of, of the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. And uh, the the story that Kosiga told was that um, that the Rome police had gotten updated from the PLO that this was going to be going down, and they left their post of guarding the the synagogue uh, about an hour or so before before the bomb was detonated. So they left them vulnerable to to the bomb. They they colluded with the PLO. They enabled the Palestinians to to bomb the Rome synagogue. And then in 1985, there were PLO attacks on the uh, El Al ticket counters, the Rome and Vienna airport in there too. Uh, the Italians got a heads up from the PLO and they did not inform Israel and 10 people were killed in Rome. But the Italians, Kosiga said, didn't care because they were all Jews and Israelis and Americans, so they had it coming. And and arguably, the same thing happened with the Achille Lauro hijacking in 1985. Um, yeah. But but uh, so I wrote about that. But what was interesting was, um, you know, the 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 it, at the same time, you know, there was all the discussion of Iran's nuclear program and the Bush administration basically deciding they weren't going to do anything about it. Um, and that it was somebody else's problem. And Bernard Kucher, who was then France's uh, uh, foreign, foreign minister, gave, a, gave an interview, I think it was to the Israeli media that I cited in my article, where he said, essentially, the Europeans are freeloading free on Israel. They don't care about Iran's nuclear program because they trust Israel to take care of it for them. That you know, Israel was going to fight the fight the Iranians. They were going to the Israelis were going to take out Iran's nuclear sites, and therefore the Europeans didn't have to worry about it. And they could empower Iran. They could do business with Iran. They could sponsor Iran. They could do anything that they wanted. They could ostensibly side with Iran against Israel, or actually side with Iran against Israel on a whole load of things because they figured Israel was going to 
you know, uh, 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 protect them by protecting itself. And, yeah. and, and I thought that that was pretty amazing because, you know, almost everything that we're seeing today in one way or another is an expression of this dual view of the Jews that on the one hand, that, that are both incredibly anti-Semitic, that on the one hand you say, well, the Jews have to do exactly what we say, which we see a lot of with the European and American leftist support for the PLO and even American sort of establishment foreign policy people support for the Palestinians against Israel and their acceptance of the delegitimization of Israel. And, and Israel, better you better do what we say, we're gonna put pressure on you, you better do it. And then on the other hand, this, this view that the Jews are all powerful and therefore you can trust them to take care of business for you. You can attack them and weaken them as much as you want, but at the end of the day, they're so strong because they're Jewish that they're gonna come and, and, and save everybody. Yeah. And you know, I ended it by saying, you know, Israel might be convinced by you that it shouldn't do anything. And then Israel, God forbid, you know, is gonna be attacked by Iranian nuclear bomb and you're not gonna have the Jews to protect you anymore. Exactly. Apart from it being grossly unfair, you're absolutely right. There's a certain point where Israel doesn't feel it can strike Iran because the world will come down on it. Again, I think Israel should anyway. That said, you know, I mean, it's it's scary when you're a small country like Israel and the whole world threatens you and then harps on your own nuclear program. It, it's It's terrifying. It's not fair and it's terrifying. Well, God willing, uh we'll realize what the game is before it's too late and do what needs to be done. We'll just have to see. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, David. Um, I, I could go on and talk to you for another two hours and, and maybe there would be a, a lot of people who would want to listen to us, but maybe we should end it because it is supposed to only be an hour and we have been going on for an hour and 15 minutes. So until next time, thanks again to Dr. David Wormser, my wonderful friend for, for joining us in this conversation. And uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, remember to subscribe and to share and uh, tell all your friends that they should be subscribing and, and sharing because the news and the analysis that you're getting here at the Carolyn Glick Middle East News Hour is stuff that you're just not going to find anywhere. So thanks so much. Have a great Thank week. You. Thanks, David. Sure, thanks. Bye-bye. Catch you later, Carolyn.